Paul, at the, at a, or I think originally started out as a Pentecostal, got connected with a church in Australia, spent a couple of years in seminary there, and is really a PDC kind of guy. His heart is to train pastors, um, to add a little depth to the emotion, emotionalism that kind of comes from that tradition. Um, the one thing that you can say is there's a tremendous amount of joy. We were talking about joy in the first service. The singing's unbelievable. They had a youth group that if you saw them, just watching them dance, you would dislocate your shoulder. Um, it's just truly unbelievable. But their, their preaching style is to, you know, pick a line out of the Bible and go off on it for two hours. <laughs> so there's not a lot of uh, content there. So um, Paul's heart for the last uh, few years has been to try to train pastors in this region that I think in the 80s was quite um, disrupted by civil war in Uganda. And uh, the people are very poor. They essentially live off the land, um, uh, walk. You know, it's not uncommon to walk 50 miles somewhere. Um, you see people walking down the street at night. There's no street lights, so it's dark. You know, you're amazed. Everybody just doesn't get run over. Um, but he, he's gathered together now for a couple of years, a pastor's conference. And I think we had probably 125, 150, uh, which included Christian workers. A lot of people you could look at and you could sort of see probably the first lecture that ever sat in in their life. Um, a lot of them illiterate. But a core of, of young pastors in particular, when you do these things, you tend to reach the young folks probably easiest trying to take notes, follow with us. We taught the Second Corinthians New Covenant passage. And again, not to, not to knock Pentecostalism, but it's just, it's pretty outward focused, it seems to me. And so when they pray, it seems kind of showy. Um, but you know what I did is one time they were, we were all praying and shouting at once kind of thing. And I thought, okay, let me just track into one guy here praying in English. And just listen to what he's saying. And the content was great. Praising Jesus, um, lifting up his name. And so I was able to pray along with that, even though I felt like he was sort of doing it for effect. God knows his heart. But in any case, so we're teaching the New Covenant about how it doesn't depend on us. It all depends on God. Um, nothing from ourselves, everything from him. Um, and then in the afternoon, late afternoon session, Doug would teach from Leviticus. Well, I was a little discouraged midway through the week because I just wasn't sure they were getting it or that they really appreciated it. But we had to catch up. We missed a session one day, and they said, Doug, keep going. And he was completely exhausted. And he did this. He had just done Leviticus 8, the first half, did the second half of Leviticus 8. That was his third message that day, the fifth total. Do you think we go along here? That was like six and a half, seven hours of Bible teaching with a break for lunch. Um, and they just really lit up. Doug had gone back to some of the older commentators in Leviticus to find the symbolism. A lot of the new guys will limit the, their exposition of Leviticus to, to Israel, and they won't extend it to Jesus. Well, Doug had shown them all the symbolism, and they really, if you can believe it, Leviticus lit a fire for exposition among the Ugandan pastors. And um, who would have thought that? And uh, one of the things I say is Paul and Sarah are terrific. They're kind of, I hope that it's something, I have to present this yet to the elders and the missions team, but I hope it's a couple that we can rally around in Africa because I don't think we have a real connection. Maybe maybe some folks, I know the uh, 
McCormick's due in Kenya. But uh, they're a terrific couple. The second point I make is Doug Goins is just amazing in that setting. God really uses him. His teaching's better than ever. He's honest. He elders the people. He looked out over them, the, the whole group, and said, Hey, you don't have your Bibles open. How are you going to follow along if you don't have your Bibles open? And I, I was standing up there going, yeah, gee, they don't have their Bibles open, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> and uh, So it just was really um, uh, great. The last thing I'll just say, and, and maybe I'll say some more later, is they were, well, there's two more things. They were really touched that we stayed in their home. Paul and Sarah probably are wealthy by Ugandan standards, but are poor by our standards. And they, but they intentionally live at the level of the people around them. No running water, no electricity. Uh, it gets really dark with just two candles at night for lighting your conversation and your dinner. Um, they have the only concrete slab in the village. That alone set them apart. The eyebrows were raised when they poured concrete for a floor instead of just using dirt. And then they've just got brick. Um, they've got just kind of rough posts for the, uh, the trusses going across and, and corrugated aluminum with holes in it so you know when it rains, it's dripping. <laughs> and um, so I learned you can take a shower in about uh, you know half a pot of water. And um, the outhouse is called the long drop. <laughs> the hole, there's just a hole in the concrete. There's not even a place, you know, you, you'd think when they poured the concrete they would have put little footprints or something, but no. <laughs> it's 40 feet down. And, um, and uh, you know, they had leaves. We brought a roll of toilet paper. But... Um, um, it's pretty Spartan. It, may, it was made more Spartan by the fact that um, we stayed in their they, they stayed in their bedroom, quite disheveled and stuff. And you know, there was a rat running around at night that ran over Ed's head one night. <laughs> we think was the source of some water from above that landed on Doug's head. <laughs> and uh, but you know, they had had uh, a pastor from Australia visit them. Uh, couple years ago, spent one night and packed up and left. And they were so hurt by that and so worried about how we, we would would uh, be able to be there and be comfortable and so blessed that we stayed with them. It was unbelievable. And I just came back going, we have so much. They are so thankful. Paul said, you know, what do people do in your country? Do they farm much? No, hardly anybody farms. Well, how do the poor people stay alive? It's hard. He said, well, if you're poor here, you can always farm a little piece of land. We are so blessed. That was his attitude, that they were just amazingly blessed that if you're poor there, you could always farm a little piece of land, probably even somebody else's land, and live off. They always have, we open the door in the morning, there's 15 people sleeping on their floor, um, you know, sharing their food. The food's pretty simple. Um, Matoke. It's a kind of green banana that's like a sweet potato consistency. They eat a lot of that. So they have, uh, they run a school there. I hope to be able to present these needs, but it's just a reminder to get involved, if not here, somewhere else. It's amazing how far the American dollar, even though it's got a lousy exchange rate right now, goes in the third world. $125 a month will support a teacher. And Paul thinks that it's actually more strategic to support a teacher than a student because your leverage, 
the marginal cost of an additional student is almost nothing. They, they just eat the food that grows there pretty plentifully anyways, and they don't have a lot of needs. If you can support a teacher, then you can add 40 students to the school pretty much. So I think they have about, it take about 1500 bucks to do their payroll a month, and that's one of the things I'm praying about, how we might, you know, that's 15 people doing 100 bucks a month, you support a whole school. They need a, a well dug, they need um, mattresses, 25 bucks will buy a mattress, so when they do the conferences, the, the pastors that come visit have something to sleep on. They just sleep outside, it's warm enough. Uh, to sleep outside. So, a great couple, just dear, dear couple. Not perfect. He's probably trying to do too much, has a hard time staying focused, and doesn't really have anybody else that I could tell who's competent. So, Paul has to do everything arrange all the travel, arrange all the, you know, set up the tent, you know, tell them how to set up the tent. Everything. Yeah, Jay. So, why don't you uh, mention about Doug so they can pray for him too? Maybe oh, yeah. About you and Ed, how, how appreciative they were of you guys when you did and stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, we were running. Ed and I would run every morning in the, what is the word? Mizulu, I think, is, is the white guy. So all these little kids never seen a white guy running on Mizulu, Mizulu, they're waving at us. But So we were waving. You know, I, I, thankfully, I hope that's just who we are. And, um, and uh, so we'd wave at everybody, say hi to everybody. And one of the guys we waved to was, a, a turns out, was the Muslim butcher who they bought the, the bull from to for the meat for the conference. You know, they just slaughter a bull right there, and that's the meat for the conference. And it was a Muslim guy, and he commented to Paul, those guys are really humble. They were just waving and saying hi. They seem like good men. <laughs> <laughs> just from, and I was just thankful that that hopefully was God's spirit, the fragrance of Christ, uh, working through us. And... Um, so that was neat that that made an effect. But we had actually picked up three kids for about two miles one morning. And I'm like, oh, our parents are going to be mad at us. We're like two miles down the road with three little kids. But they were keeping right up with us, and they would go ahead of us for a while. No shoes, no Nikes, no nothing. Just... Um, last, the last day there, Doug was walking down the... Uh, the hill from the school, which is a quarter mile down from Paul and Sarah's. We met at the school for the conference. And as he was walking down, everybody wanted to say goodbye to him. And he, he kind of twisted and rolled his ankle severely and had to limp all the way back down to the house. And there was no ice in the village. You know, there's no power. There is power up at the school, but the fridge is broken. So um, about four hours later, we got into the hotel. That was in a cab ride in which we almost died, but I won't tell you about that. Um, wasn't quite that bad. It was pretty close, but not that bad. So we get in, and the whole time I'm saying, Doug, if it was broken, it would just hurt really bad. It's got to just be a bad sprain. Well, he gets back to the States. It's compound fracture, surgery on Wednesday. So pray for Doug. <laughs> But uh, it was great. These are pray for the India trip coming up. Got twenty some people going to India. Anybody in here going to India on the team? I can't remember. But these are great times because they sort of re-energize you to be at work locally as well. And pray about if this is a, a, a ministry we might add to PBC's involvement. We're already in a lot of different places, but um, it just. They're so thankful. Ugandans love Americans. They play Christmas carols in the airport. You know, it's, it's overtly Christian. Um, but what's effective, I think, is more what Paul's doing, not just sort of the... They do these crusades all the time and they get people to make a decision. But then, you know, they did a, a Bible quiz with all the pastors 
in between sessions. It took him 20 minutes to get, guess the answer to the question, who's the last prophet before the 400 silent years? You know, I mean, they just don't have a lot of training. I don't say that to belittle them. It's just they don't have a lot of training. And so um, we can learn from them when you go over there, obviously, about their thankfulness, their joy, their trust. And we have hopefully something to offer in return to them. So thanks. That was a little longer than I wanted to go. But um, I appreciate you guys listening and, and praying for that and keep uh, Doug in your prayers. So, Charlie, you're back in here. It's great to have you. You're the senior elder. Charlie Luce. You got a word of greeting just to say hi? Welcome. Charlie's one of my huge encouragers. And uh, we are in the third week in the book of Micah, and I gave you a 1988 handout by Ray Stedman called Will There Be a Millennium? Uh, Because the issue of how to interpret the Bible comes up from time to time. At the very end, I pasted on this little golden rule of interpretation. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. (laughs) Therefore, take every word and its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicates clearly otherwise. That's the golden rule, and that's... uh, Probably on the final exam, someone will ask you if you know the golden rule. The final exam is oral, as you know, and the Lord is is one-on-one with just you and Jesus. Okay? So good to have Steve back. Uh, The first week we did chapters 1 and 2, and then last week we kind of did 3 and 4, and... uh, uh, Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries, and in many ways there's a kind of common style in the way they write. You remember Isaiah will be rambling along about the immediate situation in Israel and in the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the dark and gloom, and the Assyrians threatening from the north. And, and then all of a sudden, Isaiah and Micah also will jump ahead into the future, and they'll start talking about Babylon and the coming destruction of Babylon. Well, Babylon wasn't a world power when these guys prophesied. 
prophets were seers. They actually did foretell the future, and uh, both Micah and Isaiah looked to the fact that the Assyrian Empire is going to fade away rather quickly in their own time and be replaced by Babylon, then there's going to be an invasion of, uh, of the remaining tribes and they'll be hauled off to Babylon. And then you'll find that both Micah and Isaiah will jump from that captivity in Babylon all the way to the end of the age that we live in right now and talk about a final invasion of Israel and a final time of testing. And the, it, this, and, and the continuity will jump. And so that's why you have to take these things a few verses at a time and look at the context and think about it. And uh, by way of review, could we start about chapter 3, verse 12? Uh, Micah has a lot to say about how unhappy God is with the people and with the leaders and with the priests and the corruption and the worldly living and so on. And we got a lot of that in the first two weeks. Uh, in chapter 12, uh, there was a, there's a prophecy that one day there would come a time when the city would be plowed under and the temple mount would be covered with weeds. That's verse 12 of chapter 3. Therefore, because of you, you priests and prophets who are false, uh, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem become, shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Well, there was a destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. There was a destruction by Titus uh, in A.D. 70 of the second temple. And the Jews kept rebelling. And so Hadrian plowed over the temple mount with plows. It changed the name of Jerusalem to Aeolia Capitolina and excluded the Jews from living in Jerusalem. So uh, in a multiplicity of ways, this little prediction of Micah actually has come true historically and it's not done yet but then we at chapter 4 we get suddenly in the middle of all this terrible gloom we get these bright and beautiful Christmas like uh, passages it shall come to pass in the latter days clue latter days end of the age it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house Har Habayat shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. A temple in Jerusalem, a throne in Jerusalem. All people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he, who's he? That's Jesus, Messiah, will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah shall go forth. Teaching teaching of the Lord will go forth to the nations of the world the word of the Lord from Jerusalem it's quite unlike the situation today in the Middle East and Israel um, he shall judge between many peoples who's the he? Jesus John chapter 5 Jesus is the appointed judge of all mankind every nation uh, the judge of the whole world uh, been handed to him by the father he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. Good, strong, tough rule, if necessary, yeah. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The reverse of that passage is, is elsewhere in the Bible. We find it back in the days of Samuel, when the people had only farm implements and they had to go to war against the Philistines who had swords and armor. And the, the word to Israel was take your plows and your farm instruments and turn them into battle weapons because you need them. But now in the millennium, it's the reverse. 
we're going to have world peace. Israel is the key to world peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that great? And uh, we've centuries and centuries of wars, constant wars, local and regional, and in our time, two great horrible world wars. And there's coming a time when there will be no more war among the nations in world peace. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Global world peace enforced by the rule of Messiah from Jerusalem with a rod of iron and nations sending representatives to Jerusalem to be taught the word of God by Jesus himself. That's pretty awesome. You think about it's worth meditating. Now, in verse 5, we get one of those jumps when Micah suddenly jumps back to the times in which he's living and he says, for all people walk, each in the name of his God. The situation right now is that everybody does his own thing, follows his own God and his own selfish independence. And then he says, but we, the remnant, the believing remnant, will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah is emphasizing again his commitment to walk with God in spite of the general unbelief of the majority around about him. Now we get in verse 6, we get another time jump in that day, and that's one of those another little clues, in that day, generally means far distant future. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Now that's rather strange that, the, that God is going to go out into the nations of the world and get the lame and the broken and the outcast and the poor. Uh, isn't that a little strange? Shouldn't he be picking, picking people who've got a good college degree and a good track record and a lot of money and a lot of qualifications? Didn't work that way. That's the same sort that gathered around David when he was running from Saul for yeah, uh, David had a, a group of mighty men who were uh, uh, wild and crazy guys and uh, totally loyal to him. And there were, there were Philistines among them and Edomites among them, and they were totally loyal. Uh, so there's coming a time when Jesus is going to reach out into the nations of the world and bring to him all the lame and the outcast. And, and mostly, when, when, do, when does God bring back all the rest of the Jews to Israel? What, what point in time? This is a... Uh, tough question. Matthew 24 has answered. At the start of the millennium. At the, at, so, okay, that's the timing. When uh, about half the Jews in the world live outside Israel right now. There's six million in uh, uh, Israel, I think, and four or five million in New York City. And most of the Jews that live abroad live in, in uh, the United States, by the way, right now. It's very interesting politically. But, but eventually God will gather all the Jews, and that would mean believing Jews, back into the land of Israel. Unbelieving Jews, no. Okay. Now then, verse 8 is a beautiful little verse. And you, O tower of the flock, Migdal Eder, Migdal, tower of the flock, uh, is the name of a tower that was... Uh, on the road to Bethlehem and it was a tower of, uh, you could go into and watch over the sheep 
And you, O Tower of the Flocks, is title for Jerusalem now. And Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only a few miles apart, if you've ever been there. You, O Tower of the Flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. That's a beautiful expression that looks forward to the day when Jerusalem will be the watchtower over the nations and the place where the chief shepherd reigns over the all the sheep of the world. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Reminded that when the Messiah comes, he is the shepherd over the sheep, the great shepherd. And Jerusalem has that, that uh, will have that long-term place as the residence of the shepherd. Okay? Uh, so we're getting, we get these jumps in time. We get another one now. We get another one in verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? Pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. Uh Now that hasn't happened in Micah's day. It's 50 years or more off in the future. Uh, Looking at the news in the Jerusalem Post, in Micah's day, you'd have no clue that they were going to go to Babylon. And and this is Isaiah says, and what's it going to be like? It's going to be a painful and terrible bondage with the city of Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, a million people killed, very relatively small number carried off to Babylon for for 70 years. What a time of great sorrow and tragedy for the nation it's like the birth pangs of a woman and child but then right look at the last part here of verse 10 there you shall be delivered there the lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies now that's a prediction of the return of the jews from the captivity under cyrus the persian uh, at the end of the 70 years remember daniel prayed for that daniel was in babylon and he saw that jeremiah's prediction was fulfilled and it was time and they went back not small numbers went back built the temple a few years later built a wall around Jerusalem small in comparison with what Solomon's temple had been like but nevertheless God has been faithful to his remnant now that, that, that that's uh, we get another time jump see if, see if this all makes sense if not you can argue with me or go talk to the Lord either he, he gives better answers than I do I'm not Uh, verse 11 now also many nations have gathered against you who say let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord nor do they understand his counsel for he will gather them that is the nations of the world like sheaves to the threshing floor that sounds long term doesn't it sounds like the time in which we live right now when the nations that uh, and more and more uh, hate the Jews and the Muslim world is, uh, wants to exterminate the Jews drive them into the sea totally and they, this is what Mike is actually is talking about here they don't understand the counsel of the Lord there's coming a time when the armies of the world will come in to crush Jerusalem and destroy the Jews and what's going to happen then right at that final time when the Jerusalem is over, overrun one last time by the armies of the world Verse 13, God says to the remnant, to the remnant in Israel, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. There's God calling the remnant back to himself, bringing the nation back to himself. 
that's been the whole problem with Israel all along is their alienation from the Lord Jesus Christ their rightful Messiah and they have to come to Jesus before he can deliver them and they won't be delivered until it's almost total destruction threatening them and then suddenly Zechariah tells us that it's the tribe of Judah that God calls first and the people of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as a woman mourns for her only child and they'll suddenly recognize their long rejected Messiah and suddenly wake up to who he is and he will suddenly empower them and the enemies have rushed in on them to destroy them and what happens they're met by a handful of of Israelis turned on to the Lord Jesus Christ who are formidable in battle against the whole armies of the world and who is the commander and chief of this little army Jesus himself their Messiah that's a big surprise now that's all book of revelation when uh, book of revelation says God will gather the armies of the world against Jerusalem and they'll think they're coming in there to bring about peace but they're actually coming in to engage Jesus in battle and the nations of the world will think they've got to get rid of God (laughs) and uh, they're not going to win that one okay Uh, during millennium Satan is bombed yes during the yeah. During the uh, when after Jesus comes back, he'll rule on the earth for a thousand years, and you'll see that explained in this paper today. And during that time, the Book of Revelation says Satan is bound in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and Jesus rules from Jerusalem with a rod of iron, and we'll be up in the New Jerusalem in heaven with our new bodies on. But people will continue to be born on the earth. Will they be able to see it? Yeah. Yes, unfortunately. So you can't say the devil made me do it because that doesn't quite that doesn't get to the depths of our sin and our depravity. We can sin on our own without the devil helping us, actually. And the millennium will prove that for us beyond prove it to everybody. Okay. Uh, now we got to uh, keep going here because this is good. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I will make your horn iron. That's a picture of strong military power. And your hooves bronze. Can you imagine an animal that stomped with, with brass hooves? The nations of the world is this vivid imagery. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the land of the whole army. All the riches of the world will be taken by Jesus and the Jews. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of uh, 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 troops, he has laid against us. He's laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, there's a big time jump there, and it's a weird, twisted time jump. Chapter five, verse one. Now, Micah says, "Gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops." Now, uh, you do a little work, you find a do- that the daughter of troops is another name for Babylon. Oh, we're jumping right back to. Micah's day and to the rising nation of Babylon and the nation of of Babylon is here being called to come and take the Jews into the Babylonian captivity and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek that's tricky who is it that gets struck on the cheek with a rod King Zedekiah it's tricky <laughs> Jesus got struck on a raw struck on the cheek and the head but but it didn't quite fit doesn't quite fit here and the word for ruler here is is not the same word that we're going to run on to one verse later 
So verse 5-1 sort of stands alone. Okay. I hope this isn't getting you so confused that ruin your holiday season here. <laughs> but now, so let's jump to verse 2, because that verse 2 gets good again. Uh, this is really neat. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There's two Bethlehems in Israel. One's up in Zebulun. And to make sure that you know that this is the one outside of Jerusalem, it's Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. Bethlehem means house of Beit Lahem, house of bread, fruitful house of bread. And this is the little tribe that's just a few miles south of Jerusalem. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, modest, small, little village, shepherds, yet out of you shall come forth to me, says God, in my service, the one who is to be the ruler. Now we got a different word for ruler than we had in verse 1. The one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from eternity, from everlasting. Isn't that an incredible prediction of the birth of Messiah, of Jesus, Christmas time, that he is sent into the, into the family of Judah through the Virgin Mary, but his origins have been from eternity? When that baby was born in Jerusalem, that wasn't the beginning of the origin of that baby. That baby had existed from eternity as the Son of God. So there it is, tucked away in Micah, is this great prediction of the coming of Messiah who would come to serve the Father and would actually be the Son of God incarnate. Isn't that beautiful? Out of little Bethlehem. I've, a Christian delegation went to Bethlehem last week because at Bethlehem used to be about 85% Arab Christians. And in uh, recent years, the Muslims have sort of crowded in there and pushed the, the Christians out pretty much and made it a kind of nasty, unpleasant place to visit and dangerous at Christmas time when people go to the, uh, to the uh, Church of the Nativity there. But recently, a bunch of Christians went in and, and sort of made it known that the town really did belong to Jesus, and they'd like to see the Arabs make room for the Christians to come back to their town, uh, which... Right now, there's a border fence just between Bethlehem and Jerusalem where you pass out of Israel into Palestine, and it's suddenly you're under this Muslim rule, and it's bad. The number of Christians in the Middle East has dropped very sharply in the last 20, 30, 40 years. There's something to pray for. There are beleaguered Arab Christians over there who need prayer and support. Uh, because the Muslims are out to get them. Muslims are out to get Christians and Jews, if you know anything about them. Okay, so the Messiah is one whose goings forth have been from everlasting, from eternity. What do you mean by get? Convert them? Convert them to Muslims? Muslims, uh, uh, the, the Islam means submission, and, and the Quran says that everyone must ultimately submit to the rule of Allah, and that can be by peaceful means and by the sword if necessary. That's the will of Allah. The will of Allah is that you and I should bow to, to, to Allah and Muhammad, period, whatever it takes. So that's what's built right into the Quran. Now, verse 3 of chapter 5. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Another time jump? We just talked about the, the birth of the Messiah, baby Jesus in Jerusalem, that, who is the 
come to do the purpose of God has to grow up, has to to uh, uh, teach and die on the cross and ascend into heaven and disappear from the stage of history for 2,000 years. And then we come to what's called the, the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, he shall give them up. God will give them up, Israel, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his people shall return to the children of Israel. That's that birth pains of Israel again only now greater than ever before the terrible birth pangs of Israel and the time of travail which the prophets call the time of Jacob's trouble and we call it the tribulation period and it's the most terrible time the Jews have ever known or will have known uh, Jesus pointed that out if those days had not been shortened no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be shortened so there we have it again and here we have this idea of the birth pangs that comes up again in the Olivet Discourse a woman in travail uh, and, uh, and the other thing about birth pangs that comes in the Olivet Discourse is that birth pangs are widely spaced early on and they grow more closely spaced and more intense as the baby's about to be born uh, I'm told <laughs> I told say, we're experts we're, we all know about, I, we, I've heard tell about this <laughs> Well, the world, world, history is, world history is going to go like this. World history is going to have cycles of stress that increase in frequency and intensity until this final rebirth of the nation of Israel in one day, until uh, this terrible ordeal of the time of the end, and then the rebirth of Israel. So that's what that's about. Talking about Israel. No mention of the church in the Old Testament anywhere. Now we get the more beautiful verse uh, 4. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Who is he? Jesus. Who's the flock? Israel. Uh, this parallels the passage in Ezekiel where uh, God says, I'm really sick and tired of all those shepherds that have, that have messed up my people, so I'm going to come in and take all the shepherds out of office, and I myself will shepherd my people Israel to make sure that it's done right. That's a whole chapter in Ezekiel on that. Well, here it is. The chief shepherd will come in and gather his flock, the Jews, and, 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 and care for them in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Stands beyond Jerusalem. Yep, does. Out to the Gentiles, uh, out to the coastlands. We're 9,000 miles from Jerusalem, so we're part of the coastlands. Uh, and this one shall be peace. This one, this Messiah is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. So there, there's peace. It's that the wonderful idea of world peace starting in Jerusalem with a shepherd taking care of sheep and extending his influence until even all the Gentiles are under his shepherdly care. All the remnant, all of us, we're all his sheep too. The other sheep that are gathered into his pastures alright that beautiful beautiful picture of what is coming down but before then before then there's a terrible invasion we jumps verse 5 jumps when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads down our palaces now the Assyrians were threatening the ten northern tribes in the day that Micah wrote this and the Assyrians did succeed in taking off the ten northern tribes and plundering a good part of Judah. And they came up to 
to uh, Jerusalem in 701 and almost took Jerusalem except Hezekiah and Isaiah had a prayer meeting in the temple and uh, God said it's not time for Jerusalem to fall and uh, Sennacherib went off and uh, his whole army died that night 176,000 from some kind of plague or flu bug or something so uh, so, but now, the Assyrian here might mean something more than the ancient name of Israel could this be end time? Well, yeah, this is end time. When the northern armies, when the great invading armies come into Israel from the north, Israel is always attacked from the north. That's where the, most of the armies come in. The end time. Russia, Syria, Iran, when, when the nations, the king of the north comes down, that's the Assyrians. When he treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. When the armies of the world come in to ravage Jerusalem one last time, and it looks like they'll succeed, God will raise up great leaders, great strong. Seven, the number of completeness, and eight, the number of new beginnings here. Seven shepherds and eight princely men, and they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria. Assyria is... Yes, it is. This is this is at the end of the of the war of Armageddon, but. They shall lay waste the land of Assyria, which is Iraq, uh, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Remember, Nimrod is the birthplace of of the first rebellion against God, the Tower of Babel. False religion all springs out of Babylon, becomes mystery Babylon the Great. There's probably a literal fulfillment in here uh, regarding the literal, actual nation of Iraq. And there is another nation yet to be born in the region, which will be a renewed Assyria, because Isaiah 19, remember, everybody remember that, says that there will be three nations that are godly when this is all over, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. So there's a lot in this passage. But right here it's talking about a great invading invading northern army that threatens the destruction of Jerusalem. But the Jews will rise up against him, and he, God, will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. The last time. I hadn't happened yet. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, the survivors in, in Israel who belong, belong to Jesus. They will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the songs of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Speaking to Israel... God speaking to the remnant of believers in Israel, suddenly coming to the Lord at the end of the age when their destruction is... See that? Is that all right with everybody? So what is the land of Nimrod? What is the which? The land of the Nim- Nim- Nimrod. Nimrod. The land of Nimrod. It was, it was the city of Babylon and other cities in Iraq were founded by Nimrod. who had First organized rebellion, grandson of Ham, first rebellion against God after the flood root of all idolatry in the world comes out of Babylon okay verse 
10. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord. In that day, that would help us to be feel comfortable that we're interpreting this right, that it probably is end time. Because in that day, says the Lord, I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Who's he talking to? Israel. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have no more soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. I will destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard of the nations that do not obey what's that all about complete purging purging. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to have world peace and we're going to have an end to violence but we're also going to have an end of idolatry and we're going to have to have a purging of sin and it starts with Israel time has come for judgment to begin with the household of faith if it begins with us what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel if the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the sinner and ungodly appear? Says Peter in the New Testament. So the king of kings will come back to the earth, but it's going to be a very different place. With idolatry and all the works of men coming down. The cities of the world. Revelation says that. Big earthquake. Cities of the nations fall. The heavens are shaken and all the evil angels are thrown out. Big big difference. Are you ready? Are you ready? Pretty Awesome. Uh, next week we'll we'll get a, a very very interesting situation in which God takes Israel to court uh, for violation of the covenant. It's like a courtroom scene here in uh, in chapter six, which we'll do next week, God willing. Okay, any last minute? Yes, it is. Yeah. We're going to go back to what the law of Moses says: "You shall have no other gods before me." And and making of images and idols. Yes. Yeah. We're going back to 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 our roots, to our, which you guys have never lived up to so far. So did it happen before the millennium or after the millennium? When will this happen? Well, it will happen partly at the time Jesus takes up his reign in Jerusalem, uh, but at the end of the millennium, there'll still be more sin to be removed and you notice that it extends to the nations that do not obey so it's Jerusalem first and then all the other nations do Steve how about if you would pray for us today thanks everybody Yeah, uh, I want to remember our brother Rolf and his eyes He's oh yeah surgery next month so let's Doug, um, and other things. Lord thanks for the time in your word uh, again thank you for bringing Charlie here to be with us it's so great to see him and uh, to be encouraged by him. Um, thank you that your word is true through the ages. Uh, please give us a heart for it, Lord. Would we, um, Lord, we read about these idols at the end of chapter 5, and we may say, well, we don't have those, but we do, Lord, in, in different ways. And we pray that you would root those out of our lives, Lord, so that we would be wholly devoted to you. Uh, thank you for each person here. We pray especially for Rolf and his eyesight, Lord. We pray that you would restore it. Um, and we ask for uh, skill and uh, wisdom for the, this week as he faces surgery on his ankle. We pray that that would go smoothly. Um, thanks for our brother Doug and how you're using him uh, after he's gone out from here. 
And then I also want to pray for the trip to India, Lord, that's happening in a few weeks. Uh, thanks for sending so many folks, and we pray that it would just be a wonderful blessing to them and to those whom they serve. Um, just orchestrate all things, Lord, for your glory. Thanks for this wonderful time of year. Give us thankful hearts that overflow with joy so that others might see. In Jesus' name. Amen.